Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop the Highway 7 Ridge Line from TSPN. That's the Survival Podcast Network headquarters, also known as The Ant Hill. Today is Thursday, March 22, and this is episode 864 of the Survival Podcast. And uh, today we're going to have what we're going to call a conversation with Jack. Uh, I've got a lot of stuff to talk about today. Just kind of like, let's mop some things up. Let's talk about some things. Let's get some thoughts going. And let's try to understand each other better uh, and understand guests better. I'm bringing more and more guests on, and you're going to hear guests that you don't completely agree with. And I, I don't, when I bring a guest on, I want to kind of just start out with this today. When I bring a guest on, I don't expect that you should take everything they say and just say, I believe that now because Jack had this guest on, therefore he's testifying on behalf of this guest that that guest's word is gospel truth for the modern age. No. But I do expect that you at least have an open mind and at least listen to the guest before you start objecting to them. Uh, or instead of objecting to something they did somewhere else at some other time or said at some other time in some other place, when we're discussing, and let's discuss what we brought him on the show to talk about. Because, for instance, I brought Lear Keith on to talk about the vegetarian myth, and she did a wonderful job of presenting that. We stayed well away from the politics of the situation, but some people wanted to dig down and go to her blog and find things and say, well, she's for this. Yeah, but that's not what she came to the show to talk about. So when we, you know, that's one of the things I kind of want to talk about today. Not really the air, some other things. And uh, more generic and some stuff relating to yesterday's guest. Um, I also have the desire to uh, clear some things up about yesterday's guest. Not really yesterday's guest, but I want to put out some of my views on Silver as a whole because I am not 100% in lockstep with our guest. I think he's very intelligent and one of the most well-researched and professional people and most accurate people I've ever met in the metals uh, world. And I think he's coming from a really good place, and I think it's integrity in his heart's there. But I don't completely agree, so I want to clean some of that up. I want to give you an update on the Spirit Go Homestead, what we're doing, what we've been doing, uh, what we've gotten done this year so far, and where we're going with it. And I want to talk a little bit today about... Truth versus opinion. There's a lot of people out there that believe they have a truth, and they get very angry when it's challenged. But many of the things that we've been taught and told are truths are actually opinions. I want to talk a little bit about being able to learn from people we don't agree with. And I want to talk about four truths I believe that this community is united on. And we'll determine whether those are truths or opinions when we get to that part of the show. Before we get into all this, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, Western Botanicals. Hey, I'm really big on the belief that we can do a lot of great things for our body with preventing illness, improving our health, tonifying our bodies, and even uh, re responding to diseases and illnesses with herbals versus drugs. And I think it makes a hell of a lot more sense. And because of that, I've tried to make myself as informed as possible about using herbal remedies. I try to grow herbs on my property. I try to learn how to wildcraft them. But 
I can't always find everything that I need. And when I need something I don't have or when I don't know what I need, I pick the phone up and I call Western Botanicals. And their staff does a great job of helping me figure out what I need and getting it to me really fast for a really great price. They also support the Member Support Brigade with a great discount program as well. Uh, 25% off everything that you order for your first year. And there's a program they usually sell for 50 bucks. They give it to you for free if you're an MSB member. They've been with us now for we're going into our third year here, and they're a great supporter, and they have great high-quality product. Everything's either organically grown or wildcrafted at Western Botanicals. Check them out today. Next up today, KnifeKits.com. Now, what I love about knife kits is that anybody, even me, can go there and start making knives. I haven't done it yet. I have so many other things I'm doing. But if you've ever wanted to build a knife of your own, build something custom, you can go there and get what amounts to a kit. You pick your handle material, your kit, your bolsters, and maybe you don't know anything, right? You can't even figure out how to do that. So you get a book or a DVD that shows you what to do. But what if you're a master bladesmith and you're looking for really high-quality tool steel or Damascus steel or something like that or something really exotic like mammoth tusk? I have a knife that uh, Patrick from MT Knives made me that has a mammoth tusk handle. Uh, you can go to, you can go and get those uh, really exotic, neat, high-quality raw materials there. So from the master bladesmith to the new apprentice, everybody that's in the knife-making world should be checking out knifekits.com. Remember, best way to use to get to our sponsors' websites, come to thesurvivalpodcast.com first. Click on their banners in the right-hand margin. There's no tracking links or affiliate links. It's not my self-serving interest. I just want to make sure that you're dealing with actual sponsors that carry my personal endorsement uh, and have been checked out by our, list, our listener advertising council. Uh, you can't just advertise on the show. It's a closed program. We only give out 12 spots, and these, these folks are personally vetted. And when somebody advertises on my show, it is a personal endorsement by me. It is not just an advertiser. I think it's important that you guys know that. And I know we got a lot of great new listeners out there. And, um, you know, I want you guys to know that if you hadn't been around long enough to know that. Last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. And uh, you'll be supporting the show at about 20 cents an episode. You also get about $150 worth of free ebooks. You get discounts to over 32 vendors. Like I mentioned, Western Botanicals. KnifeKits.com, by the way, gives a, a discount as well. Uh, so that's really great that most of our sponsors do a discount for you there. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, or prior service. Please send me an email before you join. Tell me who you are and what you're doing or who you are and what you did and where you did it at. And uh, I will send you a discount code to thank you for your service to our country. And uh, you will get a discount not just on the first year, but on your renewals as well. And it's usable on any term for the Member Support Brigade. Okay, with that, we have the uh, housekeeping wrapped up. I want to start out with a follow-up on yesterday's Silver episode. Now, I I'm not trying to be unfair to the guests because I think this guy's just great. I want to have him back on. Uh, he's talked about having me an interview with me put on his site. I'm really open to doing that. So I I'm not really trying to oversimplify things, but in the interest of getting all this material in, basically what the guest said yesterday was buy silver, buy lots of silver, focus on uh, what he calls constitutional silver. The industry calls it junk silver. I honestly wish they would call it garbage crap terrible, horrible, uh, give you cancer silver. That's what I wish they would call it instead of junk silver, instead of constitutional. Instead of, I wish they would call it a terrible name so nobody would want it. So right now I could buy the crap out of it for next to nothing. It's it, it's cheap, but it ain't it ain't that cheap. Uh, but I, I like that people call it junk silver and it suppresses the price for now because trust me, when silver is king, the price of that stuff's going to go up just as fast as the price of any other silver commodity. So um, I don't really have a problem with the name. But he said focus there. He calls it constitutional silver because it's you. U.S. currency uh, that's silver-based. 
And so if you get a 1960 quarter with uh, General and President Washington's portrait on the front of it, eagle on the back, it looks a lot like a quarter from 1980. But they're very, very different. One is 90% silver. The other is cheap metal. Uh, nickel, it's uh, what, clad, it's basically nickel clad copper. And uh, if I were to take that quarter and I were to melt it down, it would be worth a nickel uh, in base metal. So it's got uh, about a nickel's worth if we combine the copper and the nickel at face value, uh, if we melt it down. Whereas the silver uh, quarter from you know, 1930, 1950, anything up to 1964 and back, Uh, in today's Federal Reserve notes is worth about $5.68. I, I want you to think about that. That a quarter that you could go into a store and buy stuff with in 1964, and a quarter actually bought you something in 1964, uh, is worth about $5.68 in today's money, whereas a quarter that you will get when you go to the store and get changed from your Federal Reserve note has a intrinsic value of about a nickel. And so he said to focus on that, and his reasoning was that if you in the future need to use it for barter or purchase of goods and services, that when you hand it to somebody, there's no question about whether it's counterfeit or not. They're old, they're worn, they have U.S. markets. So today you can go in and buy, let's say, uh, a candy bar for 50 cents with two quarters. And when you hand the clerk those two quarters, even though they have an intrinsic worth of a dime, they have a fiat worth of 50 cents, and they give you the candy bar, no one even questions it. So it's reasonable to assume that if we were going to be spending the two quarters for a value of about $10 in the economy or more, depending on how much silver comes up in value, that if I handed you those two silver quarters, you'd look at them and be unquestioning as well. And we get around the counterfeit issue, plus the big deal was that silver uh, premium, and there is a premium on silver. Uh, I'm going to let you guys know we're about to bring out uh, TSPCopper.com. We're going to be selling copper, silver, and possibly gold from AOCS Mint. And uh, we'll have that store hopefully set up by next week. I'm going to have Rob Gray on. And there is a premium. It cost me money, a lot of money, to take a blank of silver and turn it into a proof quality coin. And I have to pay the base method, the spot price you guys see on silver. I have to pay more than that to get the blank. And then I have to mint it. And then I have to, then I have to send it to you. So there is a premium. Where this junk silver has less of a premium over the spot. So it's the cheapest way to acquire lots of silver, small denominations, and that's why he's a big fan of it. I agree with all that. I don't agree that's the only type of silver you should buy. I believe that there is a place for large denominations. I, I have 10 ounce bars. I have one ounce rounds. I have one ounce bars. Um, I believe that if you have marked silver, that most people are going to take it and not worry about it being counterfeit. I believe that when you get into large bars, like, you know, let's say, uh, kilo and hundred ounces and things like that, that there's a potential that, like, some of these stuff, some of this crap that's been caught coming out of China, they, they, they make, make it like a hollow spot in the center and fill it with lead. Um, but I think that's minimal as well. And I think if you buy good quality stuff, you're not going to have a problem with that. But there is more of a premium. And Chris and I from yesterday agree on all that. When we start to go into the future, well, you know, will the currency collapse? Um, I believe that the United States dollar is on the verge of collapse. But I don't know if that verge is going to last a year, five years, 15 years, or 25 years. I don't know how long they can keep this Ponzi scheme going. If you went back to, let's say, 1990 and really analyzed the back end and saw that we would be close to $15 trillion in debt 
in fact, close to my, my hairy backside, uh, we are currently $15.5 trillion in debt. When I started doing this show and I was ranting about our debt, I think we were at like $11 trillion in debt. And we've grown our debt by $4 trillion, a trillion dollars a year in the last four years with hockey sticks. And if you could have went back to 1990 and looked at that and projected forward and said, in 2012, the United States will be um, $15 trillion in debt and it will be growing uh, rapidly and it will continue to run away and grow, you would almost at that point say it's it's inconceivable that they'll still be, let's say, in business by 2012, 2013. Right now we're in business and I don't see us being out of business in 2013. So this fiat scheme has worked for a long time and there's a vested interest in the entire planet in keeping it working for as long as possible because the big difference in the U.S. in a default and any other nation in a default is there's nowhere to go because the dollar has become the, become the global standard for the world's currency and at least for now is and we are and, and some of you guys disagree with this but we are fighting wars to make sure that happens let me tell you something about this whole crap with Iran we are far more upset about the fact that Iran might sell oil to India in their own currency versus exchange it into dollars first than we are about what Iran might do to its neighbors. And I know that might be hard for you to believe, but folks, I'm telling you, whenever a country does this, we start to get, it, we start to find an excuse to get in their way. People talk about a war for oil. And it's, and they say, well, we went to Iraq. We didn't take their oil. They have their oil. They're selling. Yeah, but how are they selling it? They're selling it in dollars. Right? And I, I don't just mean to us. I don't think a lot of you guys maybe even understand this. When Iraq sells oil, if they sell it to Japan, the both parties have to do the transactions in dollars and then move them back into their own currencies to repatriate the funds to their nation. The transaction must be conducted in dollars. And it gives the United States a massive advantage, and it's because on the current global monetary fiat standard, the dollar is what ba basically backs everything else. It's the global currency. We, it is the, the world's currency, and it's in deep, deep trouble. But all of these other nations know if the dollar falls, there's nothing to, to arbitrage to. So in Argentina, when the, when the economy started to collapse, anybody with a brain immediately converted their Argentinian money into U.S. dollars. Russia, they did the same thing. Euros poured into Russia as well. We heard that from the guests yesterday. So all of these are reasons that if, if our money fails, it's much worse than anybody else's. But what will it look like and how long will it take? That's where I think Chris and I differ. What I get from Chris is when it finally happens, it, it might be a long time out. We might be seven years before it happens. But when it does, it's going to happen quickly. It's going to completely fall apart. And there's going to be places that are going to be terrible places to be and places that are going to be better places to be. So far, we're in agreement, except I don't know about the speed of that, that fall. And that we'll be able to go in and maybe go to a town and say, yeah, we'd like that field over there that you guys have foreclosed on for failure to pay property taxes on. Uh, and we'd like those houses and we'd like this and that. And maybe we give them 100 ounces of silver and we get all of that. We're doing that today. It's just ridiculous. And we might even be able to do it under what's called a loyal title which a lot of people asked about yesterday and said, but there's only a couple states that even do that now. And his statement isn't, you can go do that now. His statement is, in the future, uh, they'll be willing to make that deal. And what that basically is, is I buy the land, 
And basically, I have sovereign rights to it after that. So I buy it from the town of Sheboyganville. This probably is a Sheboyganville. I tried to make something up there. And Sheboyganville is screwed. Now, they've, re they've grabbed onto this piece of land, right? And, and they own it because they've taken it back for failure to pay tax on it, but it does them no good right now. There's nothing they can do with it. They have a piece of paper that says they own a piece of land that they don't really want, and nobody wants to buy that piece of paper for money. But I show up with silver and say, I'll give you 25 ounces of silver for it. And they go, okay. And I go, but here's the catch. I want a loyal title, which means I will never owe you taxes on the land ever again, no matter what I do with it. And you say, well, why would a city or a town do that? Well, because they're screwed. And... Chris is of the belief that those type of cherry-picking opportunities will be abundant. I'm not so sure. I'm not saying they won't be, but I'm not sure. And this is what I don't want. I don't want members of this audience thinking I'm endorsing Chris's tact, which is take all of your cash, except for the cash you need for your daily activities, and all of your investments 100% in on silver. And just sit and wait for this to happen. And when it does, you'll become one of the wealthiest people in the world. I don't see it playing out that simple. I don't see government letting it happen that easy. I do think that you may need to be able to move quickly. I do believe there are places where there will be local ordinances trying to take it away from you. Or to somehow tax you on it or something like that. I do think physical metal makes the most sense because it's the most anonymous. And I do think that he could be right. But I think there, if we took a pie chart, there'd be a lot of slices on that pie as to the probabilities. I don't know where they all are, but I don't believe in going all in on anything. I like to spread my risk out so that whichever preponderance comes forward, I am in a perfect position to reassess things as things develop and move toward them. So I wanted to clear that up, that I don't think you should just go out and put all of your money into constitutional silver. I don't think you should rule out buying other forms of silver. I don't think you should rule out buying gold. I do think that the most of your metal investment should go to silver. I do think that junk silver or constitutional silver, pre-64 coin, is probably where a large majority of your money should go. But to rule out the fact that something may become valuable due to numismatics in the future, not so much. I think that you can buy, for instance, uncirculated uh, bags of silver coin like Franklin halves, uh, Kennedy halves, and some other coins like uh, Washington quarters. Uh, for very minimum premium over the, the price of pure junk, and that maybe that's one component that should go in there. So I just want you to understand, be diverse and don't go all in on anything. And I believe that a lot of your investing right now should be going into things that will provide for you like food and food-producing land. And I think Chris actually agrees with that as well. So when he says all in, he means the currency portion of your assets, Right? He's also a believer in holding that mortgage debt because it's cheap money. And it would just make more sense to have the mortgage. And if you could pay off the $150,000 house, to take that $150,000 and put it into silver and hold silver and pay the stupid 3% mortgage. And in some instances, maybe not that exact approach, but that approach may work. But if you own your property free and clear, then when this whole thing crashes... If it works out his way, you still own it free and clear. If it works out some other way, you own it free and clear. And we don't know what's going to happen. And I don't like people putting everything on black five on the roulette wheel. Okay, Just to be clear on that. So there we go on that. Uh, let's move on to something different. I want to talk about kind of some of the things we've been doing 
at the Spirico Homestead. I was going to do a post on this. I'll probably just put the picture, one of the pictures or a couple of the pictures on uh, Facebook today. But I was going to call the post the Prepper in the Doghouse. And one of the things that we did, we put in a fence on the backside of our property so that like when I'm at the office, I can put the dogs outside without having them run away or get run over by one of the neighbors or get into some type of mischief or something like that so that they're outside instead of inside. So there's less likely they're going to make a deposit on my rug or something like that. And they just in Enjoy it out there. So we have this great deck out there, and we and I'll put some pictures up of this. We put some uh, lattice on the one side where they can get out, and uh, we put this fence up. We did the fence with uh, five foot high uh, horse fencing, like you would do a T post, but the ground back there wasn't good for T posts. So we dug it out. We cemented in four by four pressure treated lumber, and uh, you know pulled it with a come along, and you nailed it. And we they have this great little yard now. Well, they also have the 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 deck that they can go under. So I put about four inches of cedar mulch down there for them. And Blackie, the old man, he just loves it because he, you know, he basically goes out, he goes down the steps and he doesn't come back up the steps till it's time to come in. He doesn't like steps anymore. I guess old men are that way. So he goes underneath there and he just loves it under there. But sometimes it rains when we're away. And if I know it's going to rain, I try not to throw them out there unless, you know, I need to for some reason, like we're going to be gone a long time. And uh, so we put in a doghouse for them. We did it with half inch uh, exterior grade plywood, uh, two layers, so it's actually an inch of plywood, and in between the two layers is a half inch of foam insulation, metal roof, and it's huge, man. This is like a little mini freaking cabin, and there's a picture of me sitting in the uh, doghouse uh, with both of the dogs, and there's like room for everybody. And my, my concept on that is, you know, it's great for the dogs, but, you know, guys, sometimes they say that we get in trouble with the wife and we end up in the doghouse. Man, if I end up in that doghouse, I'll be better off than a tent in the woods. It's uh, not maybe a bad place to be and hang out with the dogs, and that's just kind of a joke. But uh, we built a really awesome doghouse, and it's given me some ideas that if we're going to do chickens, and I haven't decided yet if we're going to do that, it depends on some decisions we're making right now. And with the amount of travel we do, I don't know that it makes sense. But, man, it would make a great foundation for a chicken house. Uh, they would be in really good shape with the type of structure that we built there. Uh, so I'll post some pictures to that on Facebook later today. Great reason to follow me on Facebook. A lot of times I put stuff like that out on Facebook that never makes it on the show. Uh, this time it did, but many times I don't even mention it, let alone put it on the blog or what have you. Uh, next, I did some videos for you guys this, uh, this winter where I dug two swales on the downward side of my land, on the back side of where we put a pond in. The pond is not lined yet, but it does hold water when it rains heavily. Uh, right now it's about three-quarters full just because we had like two days full of rain. Uh, the Kind of the updates on the swim, there's a, the third swale that's higher up that's feeding a hugel culture bed that's full and just beautifully booming with tulips and other bulbs that my wife planted because I kind of built that one and said, here you go, do what you want with it. That way she would leave me to be and go nuts with the rest of it. So on these two swales... Um, I had them seeded with uh, Caius oat and some other cover crops. And last year, uh, and, and before the first frost came, there was some buckwheat. That all died with the first frost. But now, and I had video of this. I'll have to put some pictures and new video up. I did a video, you know, where it was like really, it was just like barren, you know. And the rest of the mountain is still pretty barren. It's it's still early in the year. We have had a couple heavy rains, but it's rocky, it's quartz soil, it's just not that great a place uh, to grow things. People think I'm nuts that I'm even trying to do what I'm trying to do where we're at. And just where these two swales are, it's unbelievable. The dogs love it. They go through it. It's like a jungle for them, man. Uh, I've got Caius oat that is about, I'd say, 
two and a half, three foot high, and it's been cut twice. Uh, I've got this thing called a sicket, which is like a little miniature scythe uh, that I go through and I just cut it to the ground, and it keeps growing back. And the last time I cut it, I went in and I planted oilseed radish and some mustard, and that stuff's gone crazy. So I've got that coming up. It's starting to flower. It's bringing in the, the, the insects. Most of the Caius oat has grown back to another two, three foot high. And what this shows is swelling works. Well, just this last, not last week, the week before, I ordered in a whole bunch of trees from Rain Tree Nursery. Uh, I, I always advocated them. I'd never ordered from them before. The stuff I got was first quality. Beautiful stuff. And I think some, I've heard some people not happy with them. I think if you order stuff from them in August and you order bare root dormant trees in August, you're not going to be happy. There's really a springtime order for, uh, the bare root trees. So I decided that on this little swelled area, it's kind of a small area. And what I would do to test out for you guys that have small lots is can you do a mini orchard? So into this mini orchard, I planted the two miniature peach trees that I brought from Texas that have been in pots for three years now and have actually produced some peaches in the past. And I planted seven apples, six various different types of apples, honey crisp and a couple other ones, and one mini dwarf crab apple. I think it was an Everest crab apple. And they're, they're laid out on this swell system and they're all starting, they've already started to come out of dormancy. I'll be pruning them. On the mini dwarfs, I've heard people in the audience, uh, comment with things like, mini dwarfs suck because they have these little root systems. And, uh, because of that, you have to stake them permanently. You do. You have to put a stake in the ground and you stake them permanently because as they build structure and weight and, and what all, you can actually have them uproot because they have a small root system, comparatively speaking, and that's what keeps them dwarf. My response is, so what? So what do you have to stake them? You only do it once, right? It's, it's less work to stake your trees and occasionally uh, up to your wiring for your staking than it is to prune them, and you have to prune them. Uh, also, people say don't get up above the deer browse line. Well, that's true, and if I had these um, at the back end of my property versus the front yard where the deer are terrified by the dogs and people and movement and the cars and everything else, uh, I wouldn't put dwarfs there. But this spot is perfect for them. So we'll see how that works over the years. But some of them are already starting to put some blossoms on. And my understanding with these dwarfs is I'm going to be pruning them uh, down to only about two feet and starting to train out the branches and what have you. But if they do put any fruit on the first year or two, remove it as soon as you see it set. Because as soon as they start to fruit, they stop growing. So I want to get them up to about four or five feet and grow them in like bushes. I'm going to be putting some other stuff in there, probably some berries and stuff like that. So that's the one side of the property. Now, if you've seen the video, you, the video stuff, you know on the one video, I show this picture of the whole property from top to bottom, and I have these flags out. And my original intention was to dig swales on the top of the property as well. And as I dug the other ones, and the rocks that I removed to dig these other ones which were much shorter, and I realized that the ground up on the top of the property was much rockier, it started to seem like a really bad idea. It seemed like a lot of work, uh, and maybe there was a better way to do things. So what I did is, using my A-frame level, I had these three contour lines mapped out. And I had rocks everywhere. Rocks from some beds that we built that we decided we didn't want, uh, that we had gathered up from around the property. Rocks all over the property. Tons of rocks from when I dug the swales. Tons of rock from when I put in the six culture beds, which I'll get to in a bit. Um, so there's rocks everywhere. So all I did was put rocks along the contour lines. And I made three rock walls. Three rock walls. And uh, they're only about, I'd say, maybe a foot tall at the most. 
And the rocks are all kind of interconnected. They're not only really stacked on top of each other except in certain spots. And any place that there was a gap in the rocks, we threw in a little bit of compost and potting soil. And we tossed in some seeds, different herbs and flowers, and almost everything's perennial. This is a permaculture principle. That space exists. We've put something into the space to occupy the space that we want. That keeps weeds down. If we had not done that, if we just left it the way it was and even not put the potting soil and stuff in there, something would have occupied the space. So now we'll have mint and thyme and basil. Well, not really basil because basil is a perennial. Uh, but we've put in different uh, perennial. Uh, we've done uh, chamomile. We've done echinacea. We've done a whole bunch of flowers that my wife really likes, but that'll bring in our beneficial insects. So these rock walls are now are just sprouting, and they're all about you know a half inch high. Uh, little sprouts all up and down them. Now, the other thing that we did is if we did this, we built little caves into the walls. And occasionally I'll find like a big flat rock and I'll bring it, I'll set it on the back side of the wall and a couple rocks to make a little flat cave. That's lizard and frog habitat. It's been so warm that the lizard activity is already up. I've already th seen three different species of lizards, a blue belly swift, the anoles, and one other one I took a picture of And I'll try to get that picture up on Facebook maybe next week because I'm kind of busy. I'll tell you about that about this week um, later. But um, uh, almost like a skink, but not uh, the blue-tailed As I've seen blue-tailed skinks there as well. But this thing almost looks kind of like a glass lizard, but it has legs. Uh, it reminds me of something like, um, like the Australian uh, blue-tongue blue skinks, but in miniature. And the little sucker did try to bite me when I caught him after he warmed up. He was slow because he was cold. But I've had three species of lizards, and those rock walls have only been built now for three weeks. So three weeks. Now, why the rock walls on contour? Because the water is going to move at right angle to contour. It's going to come down, and it's going to hit those walls. And those walls impede the progress of the water and cause it to saturate the land. Well, it's all green. All we did was stick the rocks there, and it's all green. Now, I did... Throw a bunch of different cover crop down. Buckwheat, Caius oat, um, uh, different clovers, crimson clover, red clover, white dutch uh, to try to get some stuff established. I did some oilseed radish and all. But all of that stuff is like teeny tiny because it was just put out right before this rain. Um, the, the green is native stuff. So I've got this mix of native and cover crop coming up. And it's the only place, those two spots are the only place on our mountain that are really green right now. So you can actually see it working, so it's pretty exciting. Now, I planted a bunch of trees up there as well. I planted white mulberry. Uh, I planted two different species of edible dogwood. I planted gummies, which are uh, Ukrainian uh, traditional fruit. Uh, I planted some plums. I planted, uh, finally, I've got my nanking cherries. I've got three nanking cherries in the ground. Uh, what else did I plant? Almond. It was funny, I planted an almond tree, and my neighbor came down, and she's like, Almond? Won't they die in the frost? I'm like, well, they're hardy to zone five, and we're in zone seven. And a lot of people down here don't even realize they can grow almonds. So I'm going to have all these fruit and nut trees out there growing. I still have, I potted up eight um, filberts, uh, hazelnuts, that Jason Akers sent me, because I'm not sure exactly where I'm going to put them yet, but I have those potted up, and they're beginning to break bud And they're in my uh, greenhouse, and I have four Chinese chestnut seedlings uh, that I'm about to pot and stick in the greenhouse for a while because I'm not quite sure where they're going to go on the land yet. So things are coming along from a planting stage. Uh, we do have the gardens off to a great start. We've been harvesting cabbage. I've been making uh, about one head of cabbage into coleslaw about every two or not coleslaw, uh, sauerkraut about every two weeks. Uh, I have a really nice crock that I got on uh, Amazon. When I posted, I think it's a 10-liter crock. And a lot of people say, that's not big enough, that's not big enough. And I found that by staggering out my cabbage 
uh, I'm not having any issues at all. I can only eat so much sauerkraut. And I don't have a basement to like put like a 50-gallon crock down there and keep it going all the time or what have you. So, And I don't like to can sauerkraut because I, then I kill all the bacteria that are in there. So I, I only can have it running maybe two weeks before it's, it's rank enough, frankly, at room temperature. And, it's, and I'm ready to slow that fermentation down. And I put it into a glass container and it goes into my refrigerator. So that's worked out really well. Funny thing, I planted purple and green cabbage. The green cabbages have done great. The purple cabbages survived the winter just fine. They didn't form big heads, and they're starting to go to seed before they're big enough. You know, they're breaking open, and, and stalks are coming up out of them. I think it just wasn't cold enough for the purple cabbage this year, as crazy as that might sound. Darker-leafed varieties of cabbages and lettuces are more cold-hardy because they pull more of the sun's heat in because of the dark color. And um, with that, it seems like it was just too warm for them. The green cabbages have these beautiful heads on them. So I'm just kind of letting them go because they're occupying the space till I plant something else. But I might get, uh, I think I did a dozen purple and a dozen green. And out of that, I think I'm going to get like 11 really nice green heads. So 11 out of 12 developed well for me. And out of the purple, I might get one or two, maybe. And they're going to be small. Uh, the greens, I've tested something I've always heard and I've never done. And it's working. Uh, when you cut your cabbage head, you've got a, a stem that the head was on. So cut it really close to the head so the stem has some length left to it. Take your knife and cut across into it. So cut about an inch into the stem, you know, perfect uh, X, right, uh, right in the middle both ways in the stem. And son of a gun, it works. The, the ones I've cut and I've done that with, they're growing like four little heads. So they'll probably be about like as big as like a giant Brussels sprout. Uh, when they're done growing, if it makes it that long with the heat this year. So the, the garden's going good. We have in tons of broccoli in all different stages. I, I was putting plants in and starting seed, so we should have like four or five plants coming to big head at the same time, and then the next week four or five, and then the next week four or five, all the way until the heat gets too much for them, and then we'll be recutting the side shoots. So that's one of the biggest things we have in a couple different varieties of lettuce. They're doing good. Spinach is doing good right now. Um, some of my small spinach plants... With this heat uh, that I put in the ground recently, um, they've gone straight to seed. I mean, they're little bitty. They haven't really produced anything yet, and they're already starting to throw stalks up. The big spinach plants that I planted from seed in the winter that were kind of small and weak, they're doing great. We're able to cut from them and use them for salads, so that's doing good. Um, I took a gamble, and I already have a bunch of Roma tomato and some cherry tomato in the ground. Because it doesn't look like we're going to get any more frost this year. It is a gamble. We're way before our first frost date, but I took the gamble. I also planted a ton of peppers. I have um, 24 bell peppers and 18 jalapeno peppers. We made a decision with the garden this year to really focus on the stuff that we eat a lot of instead of just trying to go crazy with multiple varieties. It'll be later in the year before I get the squash and the cucumbers and stuff like that, And but the gardens are going well. So if you've been wondering what's going on with the Spirit Go Homestead, an awful lot, a lot of work. And, folks, let me tell you what, planting those it was almost 30 trees, I was so glad that I did the rock walls versus the swales. I planted one tree, and it was kind of a weird shape to the root, so I had to dig it really deep because the root kind of angled down And, and even and that made it like I had to dig like this angled hole, and this one hole for a bare rooted tree, and I think it was it was the almond. When I was done with that hole, there was a pile of rock where you went. There was almost no dirt in this hole. 
And there was actually quite a bit of dirt in the hole, but you felt like there's no way I could get all those rocks back in the hole. My wife came up, came over and went, I can almost make a whole little mini flower garden out of just those rocks. I'm like, well, please take them away. I don't want to see them anymore. Uh, the concept now of digging those two swells specifically by hand, uh, three swells actually, seems ridiculous. But what I can tell you is the rock technique works. I can see it working. Not only does the rocks allow the water that's coming down great to soak into the land, But those rocks, especially in a humid climate like Arkansas, they're going to heat up all day long. And I mean, when you go out and you feel these rocks, even this time of year, at like 4 o'clock in the afternoon when the sun's been shining all day, they're really, really warm. That's why those lizards are hanging out there, man. They dig that stuff. And I can only imagine how hot they're going to get in June. But when you get something really hot sitting in a humid climate, what happens when the sun goes down and you hit the dew point? You get dew accumulated on them. So they're going to constantly get this little dew drop uh, going on. So that's one of Paul Wheaton's techniques of piling rocks up. But I've put it in a different context where it's on swell. And where did I get the idea? Or on contour. I got the idea from Yakuba Sakadoa, who is the man that stopped the desert, uh, from the video that I reviewed where he was doing the Zai farming, where they dig holes and fill it with compost and organic matter. But another technique they had is they just simply put rocks on contour. They got rocks laying everywhere. They got people with nothing to do. They figure out a contour line and they all just put rocks on it. They do their rocks with like a one inch gap because they have really like heavy, heavy rains. And I guess maybe they could actually create a dam or something. But I did mine in walls and we just, I'll, I'll tell you what's nice about the dam, the three swales and the rock walls. We just got the test. I am not going to have any problems with erosion or anything breaking loose. If it stood up to 23 hours of rainfall, It's good to go. And I mean, folks, it was heavy rainfall, flash flood warnings, all that jazz. So there you go, the update on the Spearco Homestead. Now I want to talk about truth versus opinion. I'm switching gears completely here. Um, yesterday we did have Chris on, Chris Dwayne from, uh, Jesus, it's hard, you know, Silver Shield and uh, The Greatest Truth Never Told, Sons of Liberty Academy, Don't Tread on Me. I mean, the guy's doing a million things. And um, one of our long-term listeners, Backwood Engineer, Uh, and I, I don't know if he was having a bad day or something, but he comes out and he goes, I don't think I need to listen to this one. I've heard enough bashing of America on mainstream media. And I went to his website and there was this quote that he pulled out. And I'm like, dude, maybe you should listen. Responded to him in the comments. And by the time I responded to one comment, like three more. And it was like he was going on some kind of witch hunt on this guy. You know, calling him an anti-Semite, which we'll get to in a minute. And that's just not the case. And uh, bringing out like, like almost like he was like an attack dog attacking this guy. And finally I said, listen, dude. You haven't even, you, you've said you haven't listened to the interview. This is for the discussion of the interview, not for your personal, but you've gone far enough. Go any further, I'm going to shut you down. And he came back and said, you know, I've been listening since episode 56 or something like that. And he has. He's been around. And that's part of why, you know, I mean, there's some longevity there and a respect for Backwoods Engineer. And uh, he said, if you want to delete my comments, go ahead. I don't think it's fair. I'm not going to delete your comments. And I'll let Chris respond to your comments if he wants to. But given you haven't listened yet, you've gone far enough. And I will bet you five years of MSB, I'll give you five free years of MSB, that if you listen to this interview, you will have to come back and say that you were wrong and that you got a lot out of it. And he did. And he did. He said, I guess I owe you five years now. <laughs> like, no, you know, it was a one-sided bet. I don't need to hedge a bet when I know the outcome. And there's a lesson there. And it's the same thing with Lyra Keith, or Lyra Keith. I don't know why I keep calling her Lyra. A lot of people do that to her. She doesn't like that, by the way. Um, you know, a radical feminist. I'm sure you can find things you disagree with. But when I brought her on the show, it wasn't to discuss radical feminism, right? It was to discuss the vegetarian myth. And she's done some of the most amazing research into that field. And 
you cannot argue the scientific data the lady brings to the table. I think that health is important. I think that we've been deceived by our government in many aspects, specifically nutrition. I think it's led to a lot of the chronic illnesses and problems that didn't exist 150 years ago. They just weren't even here. Nobody even, it wasn't like they didn't have a name yet. They didn't exist. People didn't get them. And then your government lies to you and says, well, that's because everybody died by 40. No, they didn't. No, they didn't. I went through 20 of our founding fathers, figured out their average day, date of death, age, age of death, 72.1 years. The current average age of death for white males in America is 72.9. 0.8 of a year. That's what they've gained us. And, and I had people from you guys in the audience that you're so locked in. And we're going to get to this, this locked in on what's supposed to be the truth because it's what you've been told for so long. Say, oh, but they were privileged and they had the best care. You know what medical care was in the time of George Washington? You're sick. Let me cut you open and let you bleed in a bowl for a while to get the bad blood out of you. you know, what they did have was a warm, clean place to live. And food. That's what they really had. That's what privilege bought you in their time. And you didn't have to kill yourself working. Though they worked a lot harder than a lot of people that consider themselves poor today did. You know, John Adams was a farmer. A pig farmer who shoveled pig shit into his uh, his gardens and his crops and taught his sons to do the same, even though he was also a lawyer. How many lawyers do we have that are willing to go out there and practice law and shovel pig shit at the same time today? Not many. So I just want you to start to realize that there is the potential that what you believe is true may not be true. And I'm going to get into something in a minute that I just kind of want to say now so that you can think about it as I go through the next two points. Because they're going to challenge you, and that is, why do you trust a source that has been proven wrong so many times? Just think about that as I go through this. So part of what came out yesterday was that if you go to Chris Dwayne's site, he has an opinion, and we're going to get to, let's, let's do that right now, truth versus opinion before we go forward with this. There are a lot of people out there that believe they have the truth, and they don't have the truth. They have an opinion, including me. Um, my opinion that the best way to run your life as far as you're eating is by eating meat and low-carbohydrate vegetables and having a diet very high in fat is my opinion. It is not the truth. It is my opinion. It is an opinion that I am very, very rooted in because it's a very informed, thoroughly researched opinion that is the direct result of the application of that diet and seeing its results in my life. So I believe it's an opinion that's very close to the truth, but is it a definitive, absolute truth? No. Okay. When I look at something like the elections in the United States of America, it is my opinion that a vote for Mitt Romney, who will probably be the nominee, is no more useful to the future of this nation than a vote for Barack Obama. And that I am going to vote uh, either write in Ron Paul or vote for a third party when that day comes because I'm going to vote my principles. And I think that is the best way to make a statement to the establishment that a little bit better than someone that completely sucks is not good enough. But that is not a truth. That is my opinion. And the problem comes when someone wants to argue back with me. And instead of coming from the standpoint of my opinion is, 
They come from the standpoint of what I view as truth and what you view is a lie. And, and then we can't have a decent conversation with each other. Or you think that if I tell you I've heard you, I still think you're wrong. I haven't listened to you. And this is where it becomes difficult for people with different opinions to have constructive communication. Listen, if you want to come to me and tell me why a diet based on rice and soy and wheat is a good thing, I'm no longer willing to listen. And you'll say, well, that's because you're closed-minded. No, it's because I have done the research and I have seen the results. And all of the shit you're going to tell me and all of the studies you're going to cite, I've already seen, I've already looked at, I've already seen the rebuttals. And unless you have something new to bring me, I'm going to stick firmly with my opinion. doesn't mean I don't respect you. It just means that I'm a busy person with a lot of stuff on my time. And it's not reasonable for any party on either side to expect that the only way you're open-minded is if you change your mind and say that I'm right. And that's where a lot of this stuff comes from. So it's very important that when we look at something we're discussing, we understand truth versus opinion. If we say two and two is four, it's an inherent, provable, mathematical truth. Okay. If we say that the dollar is on its way to default, it's mathematically true. We can prove it. There is, there is a number point at which it breaks down. If we can say that it will break down in the next 10 years, then it's an opinion. Then it's an opinion. If we say that the dollar is on the track to break down and collapse, and there's absolutely nothing that can be done to head that off and change that before it happens, now we're back to opinion. Because we have no idea what could be done. If we say, I don't believe anything will be done, and I don't think anything that they try is going to work, we're closer to truth, but we're still in the world of opinion. Got it? Let's try to think about that as I go forward with some things, because I'm going to challenge some of you guys. One of the biggest hot-button political issues in the world is the Israel and the United States, should we stand with Israel? Let me, before I give you this scenario that's going to challenge you and make some of you pissed off, and it's going to make some of you go, wow, I never thought about that way. It's going to make some of you go, uh-huh, that's what I think too. And we have those three different variances there. And I don't want you to be mad, and that's why I'm going to give you my opinion first. My opinion is the United States should stand with Israel. Now hold on. Because some of you think, oh, no, we shouldn't. And some of you are like, yeah, I don't know that either side's going to be happy when I get done with this. I think that Israel is a nation. Uh, I'm not exactly enthralled with the way that, na that nation was established. And when I give you my scenario, you'll see what I mean. But it is a nation. And there are nations all over the planet that were established and borders uh, erected and constructed that I'm not exactly pleased with the way those borders were constructed and erected. I'm not exactly pleased with the way that we wiped out millions of Native Americans so that we could take the whole land under manifest destiny and call it ourselves and leave them with nothing but shit reservation land. So, And even when we gave them a reservation, sometimes we'd say, you know, I know we said you could have that, but we didn't realize that we could, like, you know, graze cattle there. It didn't seem like it would work, and now we realize we can, so, like, we're going to move you over here to this other piece of land. It's bigger, by the way, but it sucks even more, and you're not going to have anything. You're gonna have to, so I'm not happy with the way our nation was founded either in some instances. In some other instances, like people coming here from another land, from serfdom and establishing liberty for themselves and their families – And eventually for the, you know everybody in the nation having equal opportunity for that, then I'm very proud of that. So there's a mixed bag there. So that's how I view Israel. It's a nation. It exists. It was formed. It is what it is. And the United States of America has an alliance with it. So we should honor that alliance. 
just as we would honor our alliance with France or Britain. No further and no less. Otherwise, an alliance with us means nothing. Now, here's the thing. An alliance doesn't mean that your ally can do any damn thing it wants and you'll still back them. An alliance means you have to conduct yourself in a civilized manner and the principles that our citizens are under the opinion of that are acceptable or that alliance doesn't exactly mean the same thing. Or it also means things like, well, you can't go to war with one of our other allies. France and Britain go to war now. You know, In the middle of NATO, you go, dude, guys, you know... Jump ball, go for it, and we're out because you're both our allies. You know, it's like when you're in school, you know, and, and two of your friends are going to get in a fight. You try to talk them out of it. When they won't get out of it, who are you going to root for? You don't root for either one. You hope neither one gets hurt too bad. And if it starts to get really, really bad, maybe you break it up, but you don't really interfere because both sides are your ally. Okay, that's that's the relationship I th should think we should have. Now, now that I've said that. Let me give you a completely crazy scenario that could never happen except the fact that it kind of sort of did in the past. And that's how we got to the modern, the modern state of Israel. Let's say that over the next 50 years, the North American continent goes through a massive currency collapse the way that Germany did during Weimar. And everything that we're afraid of happens. And instead of the people rebuilding in a libertarian model, which is our hope and our goal, a dictatorship rises just like it did in Nazi Germany. And let's say that dictatorship realizes that it needs to divide and create an enemy. And it needs to create an enemy where that enemy is an enemy or not. There must be an enemy to unite the people as this, this fallen nation of the United States goes forward to conquer other lands like Canada and Mexico. I know it seems far-fetched, but let's say Germany went and got Austria and France, okay, Poland, see? Right? So I'm drawing a science fiction future based on a historical precedent in the past. But let's say that this, this, this evil dictatorship that's rised up and the nation's now split. See, like Germany and Austria used to be one nation and they were then split. And then Germany went back and took Austria and said it's part of our homeland. That was one of its first steps. So the United States is split into east and west. And the dictator rises in the east in the old capital of the District of Columbia. And eventually it goes on war. And it recaptures the western United States, which is not broken into a large block, but many blocks. And the states don't even have their shapes. It's not like it's Nevada, California, Utah, Washington. It's in Montana. It's, it's all this new conglomeration of, of little nation states that have set themselves up. Okay? Now, this war rages on, and the eastern block is extremely successful in recapturing the west. And once it recaptures the west and unifies the old boundaries of the former Prussian, I mean, American state, it decides that, hey, we're going to go to war with our, our northern neighbor, Britain. But it's not Britain, it's Canada. So we go to war with Canada, and unlike the European conflict, there's no English Channel, and we can go much faster. But the Canadians end up retreating into a small portion, and they take over, let's say, Alaska in western Canada, and they hold a beachhead there, so to speak. And we grab the rest of Canada. We go into Mexico, we take that, we take the oil that's left in the Cantrell oil field, and we start marching south, baby. And we're heading for Nicaragua and Honduras, and we believe in a new manifest destiny that we will be the superior people, and we will own everything one day from the very 
very tip of Alaska, which we will cra- capture down to the end of the isthmus where we get to the end of, of Panama at the Colombian border. And we want from the Colombian border to Alaska, all the freaking islands, man. We're taking all the dadgone islands. This is ours. We form an alliance maybe with some other nation, and we become the new world axis. And a group of nations go, don't care you used to be America. Don't care you used to be a good society. We're going to form the allies, and they go to war with us. Now, the enemy that we decided to create internally within our own nation, to put into camps, to execute, and we do it by the millions, instead of it being the Jewish faith, we choose the Mormons. Why? Because we need somebody. We can make a case that they're not quite the same as the rest of the Christians. Whatever it is, that's just who we choose in this fanatical state that Jack has created out of thin air that will never exist. Accept that. It will never exist. It's just an analogy. And we wipe out millions of them. We commit atrocities at the level that the Nazis did in World War II. We create a new holocaust. Now let's say that Southern California, Arizona, Utah, that whole area around there, parts of New Mexico, never comes under control of this new evil axis. That They have little pieces they've taken back, but there's this island there. And that little island area that's, that's still free, we call it the free states, cuts itself up into a bunch of free nations. And different people settle in different places, and they fight for their freedom and independence. Some fight for one side, some fight for the other. But in the end, it is something at the, there, there are new boundaries defined at the end of that. But the New World Allies that took our role in World War II and come fight us as the New World Axis defeats us, eventually defeats us, and liberates our nation. And it's truly a liberation. And after they liberate our nation, they start to try to put it back into some semblance of what it used to be and turn it back over to the people who were victimized by the oppressive government. But then, as the councils of nations come together and they look at what happened to these Mormons, they say, this is, this is not right. They should have a homeland. And their traditional homeland was Utah. So as we restructure everything, we will give them Utah. And they, anybody from anywhere in the world that is a Mormon that wishes to go to Utah can go there. And Utah will be a sovereign nation. And some of the people that are there, they'll have to leave. Some of the people that are there, they can stay inside the Utah borders, but they have to go to a certain place. And if anybody tries to change this, we will see them as being evil and equate them with the new world axis that did all of these atrocities. And we will come down on them. How many of you would be okay with that? How many would think that that's, that's reasonable to do? It's not the exact same thing. I'm not saying it is. But consider it. The next time that somebody has an issue with what we call Zionism. See, there's, and, and also consider the fact that your country, your government, in fact, the world's governments collectively have tried to always box you into a choice where you have A and B. And they have told you that one, if you are an anti-Zionist, you are anti-Semitic. That means if you do not believe that there should be a, a, a state of Israel, a Jewish state, a homeland for the Jewish people, you are anti-Zionist, which is true, but you are also anti-Semitic, which means you're against the Jews. Well, wait a minute, that's that's not true. It can be a, I can think that there doesn't there shouldn't be a state of Israel without being against Jewish people. That's the first lie. But then the second lie is you either are anti-Zionist or Zionist. You either believe it should be there, 
or you believe it shouldn't be there. As though there's no choice C. Well, what's choice C? It's what I gave you. Israel's a nation like any other nation. I'm not in love with the way that it was founded, but it exists. It has its borders. It has its own problems to sort out. They're an ally. They've been a good ally. We should stand by them as long as they are on the side of right. And when they're on the side of wrong, we should say, hey, you're on your own with that. And if they go too far to that direction, I'm not saying they have, but if they do, we should say, this doesn't work for us anymore. Now you're on your own. And they should just be what they are. And it's up to them to sort out their nation and figure out if they're going to remain a state that's a Jewish state or a state that has a high population of Jewish people that has a great reverence and respect for the history of the land. It's up to them. It's not up to me. It's not up to anybody else. I'm not, you know, even if I don't like the way it all came together, I don't like the way it was cut up, I don't like the, the fact that somebody else decided it was going to be that way and made it happen. doesn't matter if I like that or not. It is what it is. And I don't have to be for or against the concept of Zionism to accept and respect the borders of the state of Israel. But to also say, just like us, you have to defend your borders. It's up to you how you do it. And if you do it in a righteous way, we're on your side. If you do it in an unrighteous way, we're not. Anybody that has a problem with that, you're putting words in my mouth that aren't there. I promise you. Okay, so that was one thing. I also want to talk about how fictions become truth. Let's use a... a, a Perfect example of something that we know to be true today. There are a group of people called the Bilderbergers. And the Bilderberger group started because they went to the Bilderberg Hotel, and now they meet in different areas, but that's why it was originally called that. And this group of people is a group of the most powerful people in the world that basically have a powerful people convention once a year. So the most influential, powerful, and wealthy elites in the world get together and meet once a year, the press isn't allowed in, we're not allowed in, and we don't get to know what they talk about. Okay. Now, we know they're not playing canasta and bridge. We know they're talking about how to run things, and when people have that much power, they pretty much run major components of the systems of the globe. I'm not going to say they run the world like this elite new world order that everybody wants to make a big deal about, but I am going to tell you that they have a great deal of influence, and if you don't believe that, you probably deluding yourself because it's not comfortable to believe that people have that much control. We're talking about the wealthiest, the most powerful people in government and industry coming together, several hundred of them meeting. We know this happens. Uh, government and the people themselves that organize it and go there no longer deny it. They said, yeah, we do that, but it's just a, it's just a meeting of really powerful people. There's nothing to see here, nothing to worry about. Oh, by the way, you can't come in. Okay. Now, Long ago, 25, 30 years ago, these meetings were already going on. We also know that to be not opinion, but truth today, because the people having the meetings have said, yeah, yeah, they've been going on since, you know, that time, and, and, and yeah, it's, it's, it's always been there, and we, you know, we just didn't want you guys bothering us. That's why we said it wasn't there. But, back before this was admitted, if you had told somebody, there's this group of the most powerful people in the world that meet once a year, it's called the Bilderberg Group, and they discuss ways that they can work together to further their personal agendas for the shape and structure of government and industry across planet Earth. Do you know what people would have said? You are a loon. You are a whack job conspiracy theorist nut. Now, there are people today that if you tell them about this group, they will still tell you that you are a whack job conspiracy theorist nut. You can show them articles they verify it. You can show them articles in legitimate newspapers. They still don't believe it. So how does fiction become truth? 
How can the concept that there is no such thing become so locked in the mind of the individual that it becomes an inherent truth that can't even be challenged with logic anymore? And it's because the human mind has certain limitations and the second that that truth is, is going to oppose another truth, it becomes harder to break. So if you've based your life in some way on the fact that global elites do not control things and you're part of a system that's actually heavily controlled and in your mind, as soon as you hear this, your mind starts the logical process of making connections. The more connections it makes to you that affect the way you've lived your life up to now, the greater the gears will lock up and seize and refuse to go forward. To put it another way, if everybody listening to me and everybody else in the world except you pretend you're the only one that I'm talking to right now, whoever you are, John, Tom, Bob, Sue, whatever, right, just you, had come together with a conspiracy the day you were born and said, we will tell this one person that orange is red and red is orange. We will make sure that every book they ever read and every person they ever talk to backs up orange is red and red is orange. And when you were 20 years old, Somebody came to you and said, guess what, man? The whole world's been on this. Here's all the proof of it. Here's all the doc. Here's the plan. Here's everything that we could, that we ever did to pull this off on you. Orange is, orange is orange and red is red. And this is what they look like. And you've been lied to since birth. It would be very difficult. It would take you maybe years to deprogram yourself from the conditioning that that was true. And that's how fictions become truth. So when you hear something from someone Please, go deeper than just going, can't be true. Because the first step is denial. And that was one of the great things that Chris Dwayne put into his Greatest Truth Never Told, is the stages, it's the same stages as a person with a terminal illness goes through. You're going to die of cancer. No, I'm not. You know, And then there's anger, and you keep going down that path. So please think about that. The other thing is, I want you to ask yourself why you continue to trust sources that have been proven wrong so many times. Many of you have a hard time believing that it's even possible that this paleolithic style of eating that I've come up with or I've discovered that other people came up with uh, can possibly be healthy and nutritious. There's no way that eating you know, fatty ribeye steak can be good for you. But who is the source of the information that tells you it causes cancer and shortens your life, whatever? Uh, universities. And government. And who do the universities get their money for their studies from? Government. And where does the government and the universities get their money from? Big food. And what does big food push? There you go. There you go. And so we, we know that those are our sources. And at the heart of those sources are government. So I'd like to discuss with you some of the other things your government's told you. And you tell me whether or not these things are factual and accurate. We're all preppers here, right? We all believe in preparing for disasters and emergencies. Now, your government tells you, yeah, you should prep, but they say prep for how long? Three days. How many of you think that it's wise to only have enough preparations to go three days on your own, that that's too little? But but that's their recommendation still today. Uh, on Social Security, we've been told the money will be there, but Ben Bernanke himself admitted on the floor of the, the House when asked by Ron Paul, yeah, we can guarantee the money, but not its value. That's your government and your Federal Reserve. That's your government corporations working together. They'll guarantee you they can pay your Social Security, but they can't guarantee you that the money will be worth anything. There's uh, Barney Frank told us, you know, from our government, Freddie and Fannie Mac, Fre Freddie, Ma Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, they're fine. There's nothing to worry about. They're, like, 
you know, six months before they completely imploded and the American taxpayers had to completely bail them out. In 1913, Woodrow Wilson announced the Federal Reserve System and said this new Federal Reserve System will make recessions and depressions a thing of the past. How does that jive for you? Uh, in 1971, we left the gold standard. And Richard Nixon said, leaving the gold standard won't make inflation worse, and we will never purposely devalue the dollar. That was a promise Nixon made not just to the American people, but the entire world. Uh, how well has that worked out? How about this one? There are definitely weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. Now, we can argue day and night about why that was believed. I'm going to tell you right now, I was of the opinion that they were there. When we first decided we were going to go into Iraq, I backed the war. I thought it was we needed to. I was sure they were there. In fact, I was so sure they were there, and so much was bet on the fact that they were there, I was blown away when they never found anything, because I was convinced that as, as much as that administration went all in, they would have trucked it in and faked it. And one way or another, just didn't pan out. And they, well, they all went to Syria. Yeah, Come on. You know, maybe, but... So far, it doesn't look that way. Uh, how about this one? Pink slime is simply beef. There's nothing different about it. Well, that's being you know overturned, and like every store out there is beginning to cave in and either get rid of it or just label it, just because people don't buy that one anymore. How about this? GMO corn is simply corn. No need to label GMO corn. It's just a it's an equivalent product. Don't worry about it. And then we find out that it's soaked with atrazine and it causes kidney failure and liver failure. And the government's still telling you it's safe. And if you've done any research at all, the most cursory research, you know that it's not true. Again, there is no such thing as the Bilderberg Group. That's conspiracy talk. We, we went over that one deeply. Do you know that when they legalized this derivative investing, and this derivative investing is what caused all of the misery of the recent Great Recession, It wasn't just people not paying for their houses. It was the derivatives and, and financial vehicles built on them to a quadrillion-dollar level that almost became what Warren Buffett called the financial weapon of mass destruction. It almost brought down the entire global economy and required the American people to pony up trillions of dollars in new debt to prop up the falling system. Well, when derivative investing was legalized uh, in the 90s, and it was up till that point highly illegal and considered as a form of gambling until it was legalized, the statement was derivative investing is going to be great for the economy. That comes from your government. Um, Now, how about this? We have this, this policy that we call deregulation. It allows things like GMO corn. George Bush Sr. told the executives in Monsanto while he was still vice president when he was visiting their facility and they were coming out with all this new GMO stuff and they wanted to get it out into the economy. I'm in the deregulation business. So all of this stuff being done in modern agriculture, right, um, like RGBH in our milk, genetically modified organisms, the ability to patent life, all of this stuff is called what? Deregulation. But what does all this deregulation do? It actually creates tons of new regulations that make small farms and family farms illegal and squashes them and makes them non-competitive and destroys what they're trying to do and puts them out of business and makes them have to jump through a hundred hoops just to stay in business. Ask Joe Salton about that. He can tell you a little bit about it. Uh, so all of the regulations that they're putting in place that squash family farms that when they tried to ram maize through, the new form, the form of that that they're trying to put through. 
Um, the uh, the food safety bill that they put in several years or a year ago that everybody thought was to take away your tomatoes in your backyard. And I told you, no, 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 that's not the case. And it's not. Nobody's taken away your back garden, have they? They've not said you can't give your neighbor a tomato. That was all a lie and hoopla. But what did all of these things do? Make it very hard for small farms to be competitive and to stay in business and make many things that they want to do illegal. And the government has the balls to call this deregulation. And it's chock full of new regulations. They can't even get the word right. Um, how about this? When the stimulus came out from Barack Obama, uh, it's for shovel-ready programs that are ready to go and it's going to improve our economy and uh, unemployment will never go to double digits. And, of course, it did anyway. And we spent $800 billion. And the real cost is more like $1.1 trillion when we look at the overall cost of it. And we got nothing for it. Got nothing for it. Oh, wait. No, we did get some shovel-ready programs. Uh, they improved the habitat for a species of mouse, a desert mouse, in Nancy Pelosi's district in California. So that was really important. They built a tunnel for turtles in Florida. Now, this was so the turtles could get across the street without being run over because it was an endangered. And I'm all for protecting the turtles. I, I, I'm not being facetious at all. I think if we can help... Uh, any species survive, well, it, there's probably some validity in that. We need them all, uh, especially an endangered species of turtle in Florida. But turtles don't use tunnels, idiots! So there's a tunnel that we built for the turtles that they don't use, and they're still getting killed on the road. But we spent like $9 million on that turtle tunnel. Oh, yeah, and we built this guardrail because we didn't want people to go into this dam. right? Because if you went off the road with this dam, like your car would go in there and sink, and, and you would drown. And you would die because the water would fill up. And, oh, God, no, we got to stop that. So we built the guardrail, but the dam had never been built. And we built the guardrail anyway. So we built a guardrail on a, a rural road in the middle of nowhere to prevent people from going into a dam that is nothing more than a field that you could drive right on through. This is the track record of your government. And that is I could do two hours and I could just keep going boom, 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 boom. You know, they told you they were going to give you $20 for your gold, but your gold was really worth $35, and they lied to you. You know? I, I could just keep, I mean, come on. What have you been told by your government that has actually checked out? So why do you continue to trust them unquestionably as a source of information? I'm not saying that everything they tell you is wrong. I'm saying that just buying into it because you buy into it is probably not a, guy, a good idea. And I want you to remember that just because we don't agree with each other on things doesn't mean we can't learn from each other. I think that's one of the most important things as I bring more and more guests on. And I want to close up the show with four truths. Four truths that I think we can all agree on. And maybe they're opinions, but I think they're opinions that we have in common, and they are closer to the truth end of the spectrum than the opinion end of the spectrum. One way or another, no matter how it plays out, this country is going broke. We're going broke, and the people of this nation, I'm using Chris Dwayne's words here, and one that Backwoods Engineer initially had a problem with, are squandering their inheritance as a bunch of spoiled brats. And does that mean it's America bashing? I don't think so. Because I believe bashing a government and the financial rulers of a nation isn't bashing the nation. The government has set up this system. They've created this system. But I believe that the nation's going broke. Who out there actually thinks the nation's not going broke? I'd love to hear from you in the comments. And I'd love for you to show me where we're not going broke, how we're not going to go bankrupt here. Right Now, where we start to bifurcate is exactly what will that look like. Will it be a rapid crash like the Soviet Union? 
will be in a slow, long, death-spin downward spiral with all kinds of misery and, and, and conglomeration of power and attempt to survive and the, the last throes of the dying beast being the most damaging or something in the middle. And I believe, my opinion is, we don't know. We don't know. But we can agree that that's the course we're on. Some of us believe the course is absolutely unavoidable. I don't. I believe, personally, that nothing will be done to avoid it. We will end up there. But I don't believe there's nothing that can be done. I believe there are things that can be done. We just are not willing to do them. And that is part of the spoiled brat squandering their inheritance. This nation has to make sacrifices to fix the problem. We have to throw out the people that cause the problem. And we have to take responsibility for our own lives. And the majority of the nation is a bunch of spoiled brats, and they're not willing to do it, and that's why you don't get along with them. It might bother you to hear it, right? It might bug you to hear it. You might not want to hear it because you love your country, and you love the ideals exposed by your country, but when you really look around you at the average person that's not yet woken up to some of this stuff, you know for a fact they're not willing to sacrifice one damn thing to fix anything. They're willing to cut down the last tree and burn it to keep the Xbox running. And that's the truth. And they don't care about their debt. They don't give a damn about tomorrow. They care about now. And they continue to pick one side or the other of the two-party system that supports whichever components they're most interested in. And that's the way that it is. And I'm sorry that that's the way that it is, but that's part, not why, but part of why this nation is heading for bankruptcy. So we agree, I think, as a community, the nation is on the precipice of bankruptcy. We just don't know how long, when, or what it'll look like, and whether or not there is anything that can be done about it. The next one, I think that most of us would agree that politicians, and I won't say 100%, but the majority of politicians today are controlled by money, not votes. So it doesn't matter if we change the politician. The money still funds the politician, and the money still controls the politician. Do you know, I'm going to give you a fact, this is not an opinion, this is a fact, that in uh, 2010 election, we had the biggest turnover of congressmen and senators in almost the history of the country. I think it was one time it was a little higher, but let's just call it the biggest one. It's huge. That approximately 50% of the people voted out of office in 2010 currently work as a lobbyist or as a consultant to a firm that does lobbying. So half of the people we threw out within, what, a year and a quarter, it's like a year and three months of being sent off, are back influencing government. The people you threw out actually probably have more power now than before you threw them out. Because who has more power, the congressman or the person who he's beholden to for his money in our current system? So I think most of us can agree that money has more control of our nation than our politicians do. And our politicians are controlled more by that money than by who votes for them. And in some districts and in some places, you could, you could run a dog for Democrat or a dog for Republican, and the dog will win. And in those areas, those people are completely totally beholden to the money because they have no fear of losing. And I'll tell you what, the reality is today, especially once if you're a congressman, if you've been there three terms, you got six years, or a senator, you've already got six years. By that time, you've got all the relationships and the inside stuff. You're not afraid to lose your job. You're going to go make a million dollars a year as a lobbyist when they get rid of you. You have no fear of anything. 
They're not even afraid to lose their jobs anymore because they'll go work for the system that's funding them. That's how it's set up. So our solutions, I think most of us agree, can't come from there. They can't. Next one, I believe that most of us would say this today. Good people are made criminals by pointless laws, laws that have no purpose, laws that have no function, laws that protect no man or woman. Joel Salatin. Joel Salatin had a situation in his life, I talked about this earlier this week, where the law didn't change, the bureaucrat changed. He had been doing business the same way for over a decade. People owned the cattle, okay, and they would buy the cow on the hoof, and then they would pay for the butchering, and then they would pay Joel for the, for the, the, the butchered way to the meat after the butchering was done. Nobody had a problem with this. Everything was done in proper facilities and what have you, and the cows had already been slaughtered. The carcasses were hanging at the, 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 uh, the butcher. Again, this is FDA-approved butcher. Hanging in there. Bureaucrat came in, said, you're using a loophole, don't like it, and pink-tagged all the meat. So the meat's just hanging there. And he says, you can't do business this way. And Joel says, well, what do we got to do to clear it up? And he gave him this loophole line of shit that he had to do. And he, it's basically, on the best-case scenario, it's going to take two to three weeks. And Joel said, all that meat will rot in the next two to three weeks. It will not be good anymore. It will go to waste. And the bureaucrat said, that's not my problem. Who is being protected with that? Who's being protected with that? Remember Jan Klein? Those of you that haven't been here that long, she's a lady who was dying of bone cancer. She has passed. This community gave her $30,000 so she could die with dignity, so she could have things at the end, so she could pay her medical bills, so she didn't leave her, her, her heirs destitute because of what the city of uh, Salem, Oregon did to her. She was selling the last of her possessions in the backyard of her boyfriend's home. And she was dying. This is an old lady dying of bone cancer. And the city shut her down because you can only have three yard sales a year. They turned a dying woman with cancer into a criminal because a neighbor was annoyed there was too much traffic on their street. And those are just two examples. This is just two examples. There was a lady in, I believe it was Illinois. It was either Illinois or Michigan that was put in jail because she had vegetables growing in her front yard. And the code enforcement bureaucrat said that only grass qualified as being appropriate for the front yards based on the codes. They put her in jail. She got out. I think she ended up beating it. They put her in jail. They made her a criminal, literally made this woman a criminal for growing broccoli and carrots in her front yard. This wasn't an HOA. This was a city government that did this. Oh, by the way, a city government that is currently closed on Fridays and is on a four-day work week is a cost-saving measure because they're almost bankrupt. So they, they had enough resources to put a lady in jail for growing broccoli, turnips, and carrots in her front yard, but they don't have enough resources to turn the lights on on Friday morning. So I think with that, we're not even. We're not even on opinion here. I think we're on a truth that today in America, good people are made criminals by pointless laws. And then I think the last one is what I want to close on today. It is up to us to deal with the problems, to fix the problems, and to deal with their aftermath. The problems are here. We can fix some. Some are not going to be fixable until the paradigm breaks because the problems become so evident that they, they create a disaster. And it's up to us. There's no one else that can do this but us and people like us all over this country. And thank God our numbers are growing every day. 
And we all have to live our own lives bold and empowered and in quest of personal individual liberty. And that means that when we meet people that are 80 to 90% in, in lockstep with us, and they have 10 to 20% where they disagree, we need to shut up about the 10 to 20%. We don't have time for the 10 to 20%. We need to focus on the 80 to 90%. Because we got a nation going broke, we got politicians that don't listen, and we can't fix the problem politically, and we can't. And if you think we can, I'm sorry, you're wrong. Some of you will make the case to me that we can slow down the damage in the political system, and I would tell you that in some areas you're correct, we can, but we still are going to the cliff. You know, one guy has the car on a 90-degree angle heading straight at the cliff at 60 miles an hour, And you guys want to change it to, you know, 80 degrees and, and 50 miles an hour. So we have a little time longer before we go over the cliff. And it's noble, but the, the end result is the same. The only solution is to focus on yourself, your family, and your community. And continue to speak the truth. And continue to be an example of the truth. You will not win people over with a political debate. Because... Everything that I've told you about how truths become fictions and fictions become truth is true. And people are locked into this. And when you meet someone that you're trying to talk to and you're like, you just don't freaking get it. And you start to just have animosity toward that person. Realize you were probably right where they were five years ago. At least they're on the path. Because at least they're listening to you. And when someone new tells you something that causes you to close down and say, that can't be true. Just think about this. Just think about this. Maybe they were where you are now five years ago, and maybe they are where you're heading. And maybe it's very hard and very scary to accept the fact that some of the things that I tell you is true are true. But folks, I try to be clear. I try to be clear, and I don't always do a good job because I'm so passionate, and I believe so much what I believe, and I know so much of why I believe what I believe. But I try to be clear When I say something is a fact versus my opinion. If I just say it, and I don't say, I want you to know this is an absolute fact, then accept that it's my opinion. But when I tell you, I know this is true, then I have a reason for saying so. And when you disagree with my opinion, that's one thing. But when I tell you something is a truth, and you disagree with it, I'm not telling you to just believe it. I think Chris said yesterday, don't believe anybody, even me. Question everything. But if I tell you it's a truth and I tell you it checks out because of something, go investigate it before you write it off. Because the most dangerous thing that we can do in this current age and in this current time is to live our lives believing lies to be true. It's how we're going to get the most hurt when things come crashing down around us. Because again, it's up to us to fix the problems and we're going to be the ones that are going to deal with the aftermath. And I don't mean just us preppers. I mean us people. The people that aren't on board right now, it's still up to them to fix the problem, and they're still going to be the ones sitting in the aftermath, and they're going to have to, to work from whatever level of preparedness and reality that they had. But the longer we cling to a falsehood, everything's super, everything's fine, keep using the MasterCard, don't worry about it, the Federal Reserve is good, yada, yada, yada. The longer you cling to those old paradigms that we know to be falsehoods, the more danger you're in, when reality surfaces because the dangerous point isn't when everybody believes it's fault it believes the, the the truth is a lie and a lie is the truth the dangerous point isn't when many people are waking up before the consequences and beginning to awaken others the danger point the tipping point 
is when it becomes so obvious that even the person that was the most lockstep in with the falsehood, with the illusion, snaps to the truth. And when you have a mass awakening, that's when everybody goes nuts and apeshit. And that's where we're headed. Unless something major changes, and I'm open to the possibility of change, you're going to have to show it to me first. And right now, I don't see one. And I don't pretend to be a prophet, and I don't know when. One thing I like that Chris said on the blog yesterday, though, responding to you guys, respect the man for showing up and responding to you and engaging with you and answering your questions. That's, that's great. I love when we have guests that do that. I, I, I have no use for a guest that comes on this show and doesn't engage with you guys on the blog afterwards. Those guests never come back, just so you know. But he said, I would rather be seven years too early than one year too late in my play on this. And I don't, again, I'm not all on this, all on this, you know, silver bandwagon, 100% thing. But when it comes to being prepared, And it comes to getting my life right and getting to the right place, downsizing and making sure I can take care of myself for a year on my own with no support if I absolutely have to. Maybe not real happy about it, but I can do it. I'd rather be a year early, or seven years early than one year too late. I hope you guys feel the same way. And I hope we can agree more uh, in the future. And when we don't agree, I hope we can be civil with each other. And the biggest thing I hope is that you will begin to question everything in your life and think critically i can promise you it's the one thing the people in power do not want you to do they don't care which side you vote for they don't care which bank you go into debt with they don't care which job you take they don't care if you're on unemployment or you're funding unemployment by being the guy that's working they don't care if you're on welfare or you're a social worker that provides they don't care where you are as long as you're in the system and as long as you believe the a b paradigm it's choice a and b and everything when you start saying what's choice c d e and f and what's the facts on the ground behind this thing and where did this really come from you start to scare them That's why they don't like movements. That's what they're really concerned with. They don't, they don't care about a movement that is just inside the paradigm. They'll use it. They'll either get behind it because it fits their agenda for now, or they'll make you afraid of it and they'll squash it because it doesn't fit their agenda for now. What, fears them, what makes them have fear is a movement of people that start to think and act and be and do for themselves. Try to be that kind of person. Put fear in their hearts because when you put fear in the hearts of the leaders, Take fear out of your own heart. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another episode of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.
nobody up there cares They're living for today Yeah.